Welcome to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Katrina. And it's good to see you again, Kat, on Zoom. We were recently together in person on the South Bank in London, which was wonderful after about 18 months of Mm. only interacting on Zoom and phone. So it's nice to know that you exist in the real world as well. (laughs) We shared a little video of our time there in our Facebook group. I think that was when we were having lunch and having some mocktails, which is very nice, very nice. Yeah, and it's good to be back. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a funny experience in a way because we've created unfurling completely remotely. We haven't seen each other during all this time and yeah, it just felt quite empowering actually about what you can create even if you can't be near people. So, yeah, and obviously lovely to see you too. Mm, yeah, it was. It was. I think it was a moment of kind of feeling just pleased and a bit proud of what we've created and sort of learned as we've gone, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Complete beginners in everything from, yeah. you know, contents to editing to marketing. And yeah. um, we did a, a couple of posts on LinkedIn and, and Facebook um, around us thanking the people that, that have been um, instrumental in advising us along the way. So you know who you mm. are. But thank mm, you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, so t- today... Um, I guess we're, we're, we're seeing the summer as a slightly slower pace for ourselves. I think many of our listeners will be too. So we're taking August nice and gently. And so we'll be offering one episode this month, which is today's. And it actually was inspired by a meeting I had a few weeks ago where I heard a brilliant woman called Philippa Bailey speak. And just the way she spoke really resonated with a lot of what we, we touch on and think about in Unfurling. And it also really reminded me of an episode that we did in season one. I think it was episode nine. And it was called Language, Singing Land Back Into Being. And it actually proved to be one of our most popular episodes to date. So we know that people are interested in language. And we we felt that having Philippa come on today would be a, a way to deepen some of our thinking around the importance of language. And particularly in terms of how we relate with the world, how we relate with other people, with the land, and in particular, how we can think about and approach COP26. So we will introduce Philippa in a moment. I'm really looking forward to having Philippa on. Um, reading about her work is just a really great way to, to, to come into challenging topics like climate change and, and think about concepts like language and words as well. In the last few episodes, we, in many of those episodes, we've featured guides or guests who've kind of talked us through a topic and helped us explore it. And we're seeing Philippa really as a guide, but also as a kind of showcase of her work and the work that that the project, which you'll hear more about, is doing, and, and a kind of showcase of what's possible when we think about stepping into action. Philippa is our guide, and we're really looking forward to to sharing her work with you. So at the end of our episode on language in season one, we started to touch upon how language may be able to help us tackle climate change and promote conservation. And 
A few weeks ago, I heard a brilliant lady called Philippa Bailey speak. We were introduced by a mutual friend called Elle Harrison, who's a, a coach. And when I heard Philippa, I was just like, there's so much unfurling vibe going on. And there's so much interest when it comes to thinking about words and language and how we can use those to get into action when it comes to climate change. So we've invited her along today. I'm really excited to hear about her journey and also the project she's currently co-creating. So welcome, Philippa. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for coming along to us today. And um, just as a, a quick introduction, Philippa is one of the uh, creative producers of Living Language Land, which is a global nature language project for COP26. She's working alongside the artist Neville Gaby in close collaboration with partners, contributors, collaborators, and connections from around the world. When I heard Philippa speak, I was fascinated about her professional journey. She's a research scientist turned public engagement practitioner and research manager. And she has a real passion to create unique spaces that help people think differently, whether one-to-one or in large-scale public events. She's worked across a range of disciplines from neuroscience to cybersecurity, but the heart of her work lies in rethinking our relationship with the earth. Philippa, it would be great just to, to get a bit more of a sense of you by um, spending a couple of minutes on that professional journey that I mentioned earlier. So where you started and how you came to be co-creating Living Language Land. Yeah, thank you, Katrina. Sometimes I ask myself the same questions. <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> My background is in life sciences. I studied natural sciences in Cambridge as an undergraduate and went on to do a PhD in neuroscience um, at University College London. And I studied for my PhD, I studied um, the development of the brain in tiny embryonic fish, uh, zebrafish. Mm. And so it's a pretty niche, <laughs> pretty niche topic. Yeah. But I guess... Um, you know, in a way, my love of life and of nature kind of comes through that because you, when you're when you're doing science, you're observing things very, very closely. And I spent literally days of my life um, staring down the microscope at, um, you know, tiny things moving, uh, cells rearranging and, mm. and bodies taking shape. And and that's really a remarkable process. It's the unfolding of of, of life right in front of you. Mm. Um, but I think I felt that, you know, spending my life in the lab was going to be really difficult. I always wanted to make connections with people outside um, science. And that's how that's what took me into sort of public engagement and um, trying to make the connections with people's lives and uh, as they as they're living them and experiencing them. And that led me into more managing research and managing communities of researchers um, including um, the Environmental Research Institute at, at the University of Bristol called the Cabot Institute, where, um, where I actually met Neville Gaby, the, my, my fellow producer on Living Language Land. And then I had a, a detour into the corporate world, into HP and worked in their cybersecurity lab, but really felt you know, that, that my heart was always in the, in, in the environmental work and mm. just how we how we nurture and reform that connection to nature and really that understanding that we are part of nature, just as mm. just like the zebrafish that we study or the, um, you know, the beautiful um, animals and plants that, that, that infuse our life with so much pleasure, you know, we're also part of that. Um, so that's, that's sort of where living language mm. land came from. 
Thanks, Philippa. I love that. And how you speak about your heart was really in the environmental world and, and kind of curious to explore that more. Can you just expand on that a bit and, and perhaps share how the natural world has informed or inspired you in your in your life and your work? Yeah, um, I guess I grew up in a family um, that particularly my mum really loved nature. She'd grown up in a kind of wild way um, in East Germany um, just in the years after the war. And so for her, I think nature meant freedom and um, being out in nature was was the place where she felt where she felt free and um after she died um a few years ago uh, i really found a lot of solace in nature and being in, in being in nature she was also a scientist and artist and um and the work that she made in ceramics was very much inspired by forms that she saw in nature and and her experience of of yeah being in nature um I also had the chance to spend yeah four years in in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, and um, and you know that's a place of really beautiful grand nature, and that's what people mm. do. They go to see the waterfalls and see the rivers and see the desert and see the mountains and the coast. And you've got in that corner of the Pacific Northwest there are all those different environments, and that was hugely exciting to me having come from the UK where our nature is is beautiful and very sort of compact and small and this was wild big big nature um and and I've also done some work at um spending time in the in the California desert and uh, in much more sort of an eco psychology I guess uh, setting sort of exploring exploring myself and and being with others who are exploring themselves in relationship to nature and that sort of idea that nature offers you a mirror for your own thinking, you know, so a landscape that can be grand and expansive and exciting can also seem hostile and barren and unforgiving. It's it's a reflection of what's going on inside you. So in that way, you can be kind of in a conversation with nature and understanding about yourself at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that's always just been really rewarding to me, I guess. Mm. <laughs> and I understand it's a massively privileged place to, to be, to have the chance to travel so much and to experience different different settings and different parts of the world. But I think mm. it's true on a small scale as well. It doesn't mm. have to be. Yeah, yeah. And that really, I, I love, you know, your work, as you say, looking down a, a microscope um, and observing life unfolding or out in, you know, the California deserts in Oregon and mm. looking at that expansive nature. It's, mm. it's um, you know, there's kind of lessons to be had in at all levels, really. Yeah. Just curious to hear a bit more about your project, Living Language Land. Yeah, yeah. it'd be great to hear a bit about who's involved and the kind of purpose behind it. Yeah, really, really keen to hear more. Yeah, thank you. So Living Language Land is a, a journey through endangered and minority languages that reveal different ways of relating to land and nature. And the idea of the project is to share 26 words in the run-up to COP26 to give a global audience a sort of fresh a fresh inspiration and a fresh perspective for tackling our environmental crisis. Mm. Um, and that, for me, came out of a sense of, I guess, almost fatigue, maybe, with the in the climate movement, this sense of fighting and of resisting. And, you know, I, I have huge admiration for people who can do that um, and do that over, over long periods of time. And, and I've been involved in a very low level of activism for a long time. But 
I really felt for myself that I needed to find a sort of softer approach and something that was more based around a conversation, really, I guess, mm. a- about our relationship with nature. And I found huge inspiration in this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, by the author mm. Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm. who um, is herself a, a Native American from the um, citizen Potawatomi Nation um, and also an ecologist and researcher. So I, I felt a lot of you know, kindred <laughs> spirit in in her sort of scientific approach, and then you know, really appreciated the depth of her indigenous wisdom that she brought to to the to the book. And and there, you know, the, the themes that she talked about in there of reciprocity and of the honourable harvest and of a sort of flow and a conversation um, going back and forth with nature really resonated with me. And Neville had come through a different path, but. Um, particularly two experiences that I know he he talk, often often talks about one in in western australia and um in a in a place called kelleberin and um having the chance to spend time with a nunga an aboriginal um elder from the nunga nation and um and really seeing the land through her eyes and and her taking the time to to explain things to him that was deeply moving to him and and also a project that he did in the eastern United States with the Wampanoag nation. The Wampanoag were were some of the first people to encounter the European settlers and the, the Pilgrim Fathers, actually, and their language and their way of life was exterminated through colonization. But in the last sort of 30 years, um, a woman called Jessie Little Doe Bard has been revitalizing the Wampanoag language and bringing it back to be um, a mother tongue for uh, and taught in in schools um, and through the language to rediscover the Wampanoag culture. Um, and so that those were some of the threads that brought Neville to this place. So the two of us coming with this this sense of like, ah, oh, there is this incredible relationship to place, to nature, to land. That language can convey. How could we bring? How could we infuse some of the COP26 conversation that's dominated by carbon and nature-based solutions and whatever? How could we infuse some of that into the into the climate discussion? Mm. Brilliant, thank you. I love that, and especially the piece at the end about um, this kind of almost obsession with ideas like carbon and um, net zero, which I completely understand in terms of a target and so on. But but I love how you speak about this being a conversation, it being a softer um, way in to, to dealing with what is a huge and, and often terrifying um, subject. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah. we can go more deeply into that, but that the fear that that engenders, I think, mm. um, is a huge part of the resistance that we're facing to doing mm. things differently. And and actually, the message that we hear, certainly from Indigenous wisdom, and and that has been my experience, is we are all part of nature. We are on the same side. We mm. are. We are. We belong. We we feed each other. Um, and indeed, you know, many languages don't even have a word for nature or landscape mm. because people don't think of themselves as being separate from mm. it. So it isn't something that's out there. It is inherently something that is part of each of us. And I think we've set ourselves up in a really difficult situation with this idea that either nature wins or we win. <laughs> and there just mm. isn't that is a totally false battle mm. because there is no way for us to win whatever winning means if nature loses you know when mm. nature loses we we lose we 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 can't sustain life mm. on our planet 
So it feels like, yeah, there's really a huge piece of work in building that empathy with nature that we're not on the other side of nature. Nature is on our side. We are on her side. We are, we are, we are together um, on the planet. I, I don't know. It's, um, mm. it's a, it's a real mindset shift. And I guess living language land is sort of playing at the edge of that without sort of coming out quite so strongly, but, mm. but using these, using words from minority and endangered languages, many of which are indigenous languages, but not, we're, we're not trying to compartmentalize things really rigidly we're just asking people to cast a different light on that relationship through languages through different Mm. languages and and words from those languages Mm. it makes me think of just the idea of looking at familiar things in a fresh way yeah um, and being able to access things in a way that maybe we haven't been able to before I'm just curious would you be able to share one or two of the words um Mm. in in your project or yeah yeah gladly so in this we've only we only just started sharing the words last week so Mm. we're still in the early stages but um one of the first words that we shared is um a word called sardak a word the word is sardak and it means the um the ancestors and owners of the land and it's a word from the Ladakhi language in in the Trans-Himalaya region of of India and um, and what our contributor is talking about through the word sardak is seeing how seeing um, our land through the eyes of our ancestors and seeing how it's been shaped um, in a way by our ancestors and almost living with their ghosts, you know, so living with the with the ghosts of the people who shaped the land and that and the, the scale that they shaped it on was in order that they could live. You know, the the, the area of Ladakh is incredibly mountainous. Um, it's it's really harsh it's 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 really difficult to imagine how you could live there but it's through the shaping of the land the terracing of the land the using the stones to build walls to contain the small amounts of soil that are there the planting of trees that's what enables life to to continue there so it's sort of paying homage homage to that Mm. um another word that we just shared yesterday is a word um clef and it comes from the Mehri language of, of southern Oman, so southern Arabia. And, um, and the word means track or print, or, but it also means unexpectedly it turns out to be. The, the connection is that tracking was a really important skill in that, in that desert landscape to be able to track animals, to be able to track your camels and to know by their prints that that was your camel um, or that your camel was part of a herd or that was moving or, um, or, or your cows, your goats, that the word for tracking uh, has come, has come to mean unexpectedly it turns out to be because that that's a way of finding out what, what is actually there, you know? So it's, um, it's realizing something. Oh, that's, that's what it is. And, and so this word clef has come to mean, uh, yeah, unexpectedly you know I, I I thought it was this and then it turned out to be this that's that's mm. now left mm. so it's that practice of identifying something um mm. yeah through through its tracks and mm. we'll be sharing we've been sharing words from the Muisca people of central Colombia we'll be sharing one this week actually that is about that is the word hookah um which it which means both stone and speech and it's about mm going to the stones again the stones as ancestors the stones as witnesses to the past time and sitting and listening and 
sort of hearing their advice and their guidance. Well, they're really beautiful. Um, and it's incredible the power of one single word to open up such ideas and conversation and therefore possibilities as well. Um, really beautiful. Yeah, I'm so glad it hits you in that way as well, because I mean, that's how every conversation that I've had as part of this project that we've had, Neville and I, and, um, you know, with our contributors, um, you know, have, have all been like that. It's like, wow, mm. just some sort of doors fall away in your mind and you, you know, think, oh, goodness, you know, and even actually one of our contributors talks really beautifully about that. He's a Lakota man living in the United States, Teokasin Ghost Horse. And, um, you know, he talks about how concept driven English is as a language and, and he is a, his mother tongue is, is Lakota um, and Lakota doesn't, doesn't sort of box things up in that way. So when he has to com- explain concepts, he really finds himself sort of uh, having to s- move between these worlds of where mm-hmm. in English we want it all boxed up and neat and in Lakota, um, the language, which is, as he explains it, a language uh, of verbs basically so with very few nouns very few um objects it's it's about energy and about motion so mm-hmm. everything is living and moving and the the verbs give you know are a way of expressing that sort of fluidity and um and 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 animation you know everything is alive mm-hmm. um so you know when he talks about for example, um, a tree. A tree is not a tree. A tree is treeing, and a lake is laking. A river is rivering. Mm-hmm. The sun is sunning. They're all actively doing these things. And mm-hmm. as he talked about that, again, I felt these sort of walls fall down in my mind of like, oh, it's alive. It's doing it. I'm just mm-hmm. a witness to that, to that energy in motion. Yeah, it reminds me of something I read the other day something like a a tree is never a tree when you look at it because by the time you've looked at it and taken it in it's changed and it's you know the new sprout has sprouted or whatever it might be Mm. but yeah the kind of the the being and the ongoing being rather than just the static you know one-off I love that thing yeah Mm. Mm. a thing that then you can use and consume which is the the you know thingness is sort of the basis of of Mm. our of our notions of consumption Mm. Yeah, I also it just bring, it reminds me of my my four year old who was uh, had a balloon recently and kept on saying he was kiting, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I, I, and you know, my instant reaction was like, no, 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 that's a balloon. You're holding a balloon, but actually, there's a beauty in what he was saying. You know, that's actually the reality. There's there's that movement. That's the verb. And yeah, treeing, love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what, what I'm curious about is what made you choose. Um, to focus on words um, as a bedrock of living language land. Um, and what you've learned thus far um, in doing this project, and even if there's been any surprises as well along the way. Yeah. Um, well, as I, as I sort of alluded to, every one of the conversations is a surprise. It's like a sort of unwrapping of an amazing, mm. <laughs> of an amazing gift. And we're very grateful that people have, have you know trusted us to to share those things with us um it's been a huge learning curve for sure i mean just to come back and think a little bit about the the rooting of the project in mm. in language and words um i think the the phrase that really yeah crystallized it for me was when was something i heard jesse little dobard say which was in our language they left all the lessons for us 
And that was about her rediscovery of the Wampanoag language. Ironically, um, you know, to a, to a large extent through a translation into Wampanoag of the Bible, which was, you know, used as a as a tool of oppression and, and conversion against her people, but but also then became a documentation of the language. But once the Wampanoag words came uh, came alive again, then the relationship to land um, and their environment of Mashpee, Massachusetts, where where the Wampanoag are based, um, that's that 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 all that all came alive for her. So, um, yeah, to me, it was something about unlocking and sharing those ideas that are contained within language because language is a specific response to a place um, and to the specific conditions and the specific places and things of importance in that place and and that struck me as really yeah very very beautiful and um yeah rich is a rich is a difficult word because it's it's rich to me because I don't know it and uh, you know and I and I don't want this to sound like an exploitation of the knowledge and the depth that is there but it also just struck me you know there are there are something like 8000 languages in the world um and india alone has 800 languages mm. and europe as an entire continent you know has 60 languages mm. and the internet is dominated by English and the climate negotiations are dominated by English mm. and, and climate policy is dominated by English. And so it just feels like there's this huge wealth of knowledge and understanding that has evolved over millennia in specific response to place that is not a part at all of our, of, of, of our, um, of our lexicon when it comes to thinking about our relationship to, to nature. So it's a, it's in a tiny way, uh, a fight against the dominant languages, you know, which I, <laughs> I speak myself. Um, but just, yeah, feeling that, you know, in some way, as we lose species from the planet, so we're losing languages and with, when those languages vanish, so does that, that specific knowledge um, and those, and those relationships that have been cultivated over many thousands of years you know, having said that, you know, obviously 8,000, 7,000, 8,000 languages is a huge number. There's, you know, we've, we've chosen 26 mm -hmm. words um, and, you know, and we really haven't done it in a sort of systematic way because there is no way, I think, to be systematic. So we've, mm -hmm. we've approached networks of people and asked for connections and asked for people who, who like the idea of the project to come forward. And, and, and we've just tried to say yes, as much as we can. Um, until until we've got all the 26 words yeah. yeah so in terms of the the learnings and the surprises like I say every conversation has been a gift in itself um, I think there's also been a lot of learning I mean this this project in order for it to work I think has to be an explicitly decolonial project in the sense that it mm -hmm. is a it's a platform offering a voice to other people it's not about um we can't step back from the sort of framing of the project and, and it's funded by the British Council and it's majority in English, although we've tried to translate things into Spanish as well. Um, the, just the sensitivity to the language that we use in the project um, as well. We're, we're not asking for submissions. You know, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a, there's a inherent in that word is a submissiveness. Mm -hmm. I'm submitting mm -hmm. something that is lower to your, for your, mm -hmm. um, your review and your approval. Mm -hmm. No, these languages have existed for thousands of years. These people ha have been in many cases working with fragile languages and, 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 um, 
rejuvenating them and, and reclaiming them. And this is really powerful work. And we're asking them to share some of that with, with us um, and, and then hoping that um, we can offer a slightly different platform than they might have for their within their language community or within their within their particular geography. So the strength of the project is it's sort of is its global um, reach, but we have to be really aware that we are just offering a platform to host other people's um, views and ideas. Uh, and so we've we've let the contributors have a lot of freedom in how they choose to share the word, whether it's you know what what whether they write something about it whether they speak about it there's poetry there's art there's there's video work and and that's felt really important too so you know all of those sort of concerns and and questions were in my mind when we started the project but they've they've really sort of grown and and fleshed out as as the project's gone on yeah i mean what i what i love about that is it it feels like this this journey i'm i'm sure you're inherently like this anyway but that just feels like there's been such a, a deepening of thoughtfulness about relationship with others as well as with the land, which uh, is going to be crucial, not yeah. just in terms of the climate crisis, but just how we are as people. Yeah, certainly personally, I, I feel that. Um, many years ago, I did a um, a year-long course with, with something called the Forgiveness Project, which is um, about bringing together sort of victims and perpetrators of, of crimes and 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 facilitating a conversation between them and it it feels like those are the skills that we need mm-hmm. really in this in this world you know again we've we've talked a little bit about fear and um you know i i think it's a pity if the only thing that motivates us to act <laughs> in the end on our on our environmental crises is is the fear of of worse happening or that we've pushed it too far you know it's it feels like there must be a space for a more mature conversation about yeah what we value and 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 our desire to live more harmoniously together um and with the earth mm, yeah we we've spoken before Kat and I um and I often think about how when we think about climate change and other challenges you know often the conversation moves to how technology or finance or you know mm-hmm. these kind of things are going to f- to fix it and save us but actually I'm much more interested in yeah empathy and relationship and how these things actually might save us because they're what we've always known they've how they're how we've grown and evolved and lived and and it's it's a kind of reconnecting to that way of being which is in us all but maybe we've forgotten how to do it, it absolutely brought, it yeah. brought to mind um it's a book you may be familiar with by Robert McFarlane called Landmarks. And in that, he talks about the idea of a counter-desecration phrasebook. Um, he talks about uh, how it would be a glossary of enchantment for the whole earth and would allow nature to talk back and would help us to listen. In that book, he shares lots of words from British regions and, and people that might help us do that. But I love the idea of it, as well as helping us to listen to the earth, it helps us to listen to each other. These words say, this is my experience of something. How about you? How is it for you? So yeah, relationship, empathy feel really kind of core to, to your project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I mean, there's so many important things to, to draw out. And I love Robert McFarlane's work. Thank you for, for bringing, that, bringing that in. Yeah, that, I think there's a, also a sense you know, within Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, for example, where she talks about the honourable harvest and and this 
this sense of abundance and this sense of there being enough for everybody. And if we could approach things through that rather than through a scarcity mindset of, you know, unless I unless I have what I need, you know, I can't be happy and, you know, sod what everybody else needs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, instead, it's a sense it's a sense of here's a gift that I can partake of, you know, if I do it, do it honorably. And there's enough to share and there's always enough, you know, and there's an, there's there's enough for everybody. So there's some, yeah, there's some real mindset shift around that. I think that that would be really powerful too. Um, I mean, I was, I was very gratified to see um, a, a report just come out from the International Union for the Con- Conservation of Nature um, about the cultural and spiritual significance of nature and wanting to bring that as an explicit dimension, which includes language into the way that conservation decision making is made and and particularly in the way that you know stakeholders are engaged because there's always the danger of of just bringing a very you know again western centric view of oh now we've arrived at your precious forest we need to preserve it and that means that you all need to get out of it and we need to you know plant more of these trees or whatever it is and instead to understand it as as you say um as a, as a relationship that has been going for millennia that there's deep understanding and, and to listen to that first before you mm. come and impose anything and and letting the science you know inform the action that we take but also be humble and take a back seat and I guess that you know that to me feels like something that you know coming full circle back to that sort of those research mm. experiences at one point I remember I was I was studying in a different lab the retina and the developing retina and you know, just realizing like all of these cells, they know exactly how to behave. They, they, they are, <laughs> they are doing what they are programmed to do, what they understand. It's us on the outside, desperately trying to understand what that is and interrogate it and try and kind of come up with models and names for things and, you know, diagrams and, and publish about it. But, but that is nature just doing that, that, that plant, that animal, that set of cells is just doing its thing and it already knows everything about itself that it needs. Mm. You know, it doesn't need to call itself a this, a ribbon mm. synapse, a, a calcium channel. Um, it's us that needs that, um, that, mm. that understanding. So, yeah, to understand that the, the scientific understanding is always an approximation. It's always a, it's always a bringing a, a, a frame and a particular way of thinking and, and putting it onto something that already knows itself. Mm. So, Philippa, just thinking ahead now, and particularly around COP26, which is coming up um, in Glasgow later this year, what is what is your dream for living language land in terms of COP26 and perhaps beyond that as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's hard to know exactly how it how it, it's going to feed into or can feed into or inform the process at, at COP, but I, I guess I see the project having two distinct aims and one is about um, offering a platform to minority and endangered language holders um, to share their knowledge in in a way that feels good for them so you know we have partners our particular partners are um, the uh, Amwiska community in Bogota in Colombia and um, connections to the Quay um, Sambushman people in northern northeastern Namibia and other partners in in southern Africa um, and and they along with all of the contributors to living language land you know they all have really important stories to tell and and so to offer um, you know as as 
as high profile, I guess, a platform as we can for those for the, for for sharing that knowledge and those insights. But it's also, I guess, to inform the you know the majority language communities, and particularly, I guess, I'm thinking of my own community of English language speakers. You know, trying to bring in this this sense of an expanded lexicon for how we relate to to land and nature. So, mm-hmm. an expanded you know, verbal lexicon of words, but also conceptual lexicon sort of ways of thinking about that relationship as we've talked about um, today and holding that bigger picture of what's possible, what's needed, what we all have inside us, Elizabeth, as you as you said, these are like these are this is our this is our history too, is to have grown from the earth and and with the earth and with an understanding of that. So that's that's part of our heritage too. Uh, and somehow to instill that that kind of confidence with the earth. Actually, one of our contributors talks about that children in the in in the Lakota community being born with confidence confidence with mm-hmm. the earth and growing that over time. And and that's something I feel we we can all have. And that might lead to sort of very different decision making um, and approaches to decision making over time. So in some way to infuse <laughs> COP26 and the aftermath with 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 some of this this richness. I think also just to counteract the fatigue of chiseling away always at this sort of climate frontier of, of you know, nationally determined contributions and carbon offsetting. And, you know, people, everybody collectively is going to get very fatigued with that. Politicians, I'm sure, mm. um, um, policy people, NGO people, you know, everybody needs to feel nourished and renewed by the, the world around them and, and our hope is that we we offer a, a, a small part of that too. Yeah, it's, well, certainly it feels nourishing and renewing from even just <laughs> this brief conversation we've had with you. And I love the idea of informing approaches to decision-making as well. I think mm. so often decision-making relies on having asked the right questions first mm. and, and being asked to make the right decisions first. And there's something mm. about just this expanded view of what is and what has been that might help us ask better questions in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, even if you just take that, the sort of multi-generational approach to decision-making and mm. thinking about the last seven generations and thinking about the effects on the next seven, if we use that as a framing concept mm. rather than what did you put on the table? What can we put on the table? Mm. How much contraction in our, in our, you know, coal-based um, mm. industries can we afford? And, you know, this very sort of what feels like a very transactional and kind of um, horse trading <laughs> kind of mm. approach, you know, what if we took that multi-generational lens? I love that. Well, Philippa, it has felt very nourishing hearing and exploring some of the words. You've got a, a great website and social media channels, which we'll ask you um, now to share a little bit about um, so that we can signpost people to those. We'll also put those in the show notes. So I'd love to hear yeah, how people can find out more about your project and support it and any other recommendations of things for people to to explore that might be helpful. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so you can find um, the Living Language Land website at living-language-land.org. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that we're running the project until COP26 is to share two words a week for 13 weeks. So we're just in week two at the moment. So a new word will appear on the website um, twice a week. And behind that word, you can read about the story of that word as told through the the language holders' um, eyes. 
and um, and you can also follow us on um, Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter, and we share the words through our social media channels um, in the same way. And you can find your way to those channels from the website. So <laughs> I hope that hope that makes sense. Um, we're also hoping to actually go to COP26. So at the moment we um, we have applied and we're on the short list to go. And um, yeah, Neville and I are just exploring what what we might do if we actually end up there face to face with the people that we mm. want to talk to. So yeah, that's exciting. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I, I think I've spoken a little bit about some of the work that's inspired me. And I know there's a huge um, wealth of of you know nature writing that deals with language I, I personally as I said I've found Robin Wall Kimmerer's writing so moving and so so deeply nourishing and and sort of reassuring in a way um I know that she's got a new um she's edited a new collection of works that will come out this summer I think um we've mentioned Robin Robert McFarlane's work The Lost Words The Wild Places Landmarks I love the work of Barbara Kingsolver as well who's mm. you know she's such a, a far-ranging far writer but but you know much of her um certainly her essays are, are informed by her her love and understanding of the natural world as well mm. um yeah great brilliant we'll certainly include all those references so thank you for sharing it's been really lovely to connect with you yeah and something i noticed on your website philippa that um felt inspiring was um you know to encourage people to bring the words that you're sharing into a reading group or creative Mm. group or Mm. into the classroom with students not just nourishing us but actually getting us into action you know and spreading literally spreading the word (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah, literally yeah and and we'd love to see what people come up with so thank you Kat for for mentioning that yeah we we'd love to see people animate the words in their own lives yeah and um yeah, and that, and that might be through a group. It might be yeah, to set up a little reading group or just to have a WhatsApp group and share mm. them across there and see, you know, we know that people often feel a, a bit vulnerable kind of commenting on stuff in the great mm. <laughs> public um, melee of, of social media. So maybe it's nice to make it a little bit more personal and to make it personal to your place as well. You know, mm. um, it, it's got to it's got to resonate with your your life and your own your own world um, in order for it to to, to make sense. Um, yeah, we're also talking about uh, running w- with, for example, colleagues in the Philippines and contributors in the Philippines. The Philippines itself has incredible language diversity and, you know, they're thinking about running a sort of mini living language land just for the Philippines, you know, mm. to sort of surface some of that linguistic um, richness and, and relationships mm. to different environments and places. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, and other people have have sort of said they want to respond creatively to each of the words that we share and, and share a drawing or a painting or a photograph or, or something like that. So if any way that you feel you can make it personal to you, I think that's that's important because these aren't sort of just exotic gems to sort of be admired and then left behind. You know, mm. they they are it, it needs to come into your world in order for it to, to for it to be meaningful. So. Mm. It, it certainly inspired me to think about how that might be relevant down where I am in the West Country in Devon. Mm. We've got a really interesting local dialect and just over the border there is Cornish, which is a whole language. Yeah. Um, so really interested to explore that and just getting to know my own place through mm. these older words. So thank you for yeah the inspiration and the curiosity it's provoked. Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will, will also come away feeling rejuvenated. Um, so thank you. 
for sharing your journey, for sharing your project with us. Um, mm. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Thank really you. Look, look forward to seeing how things go in the coming months as well and at and after COP26. Mm. Yeah, we closely. hope it's just the beginning of, of a longer journey for sure. Mm. And, and, you know, there's so much to explore here. And I think, you know, we've touched on some of the bigger themes of of the, the sort of scale of change that we, that we might feel is needed. And yeah, that feels like that's that's more than a lifetime's work there. Yeah. Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was really wonderful to connect and, and to delve into this. So thanks for your, your time and, and for the work that you and Neville and your partners are doing. It's mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah. Thank you, Philippa. Well, that was a a wonderfully deep and expansive time with Philippa, um, feeling really peaceful and also inspired by her work with Neville and with her partners around the world. Um, yeah, how was that for you, Elizabeth? Yeah, similar, feeling kind of peaceful and 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 nourished and refreshed. Actually, I'm sure we'll pick up on this more, but you know, to, to come into a, a topic, whether it's climate change or, or more generally, you know, language and the, the world through this really interesting and tangible way of, of using words. I just found it really refreshing. Yeah, what struck me throughout the conversation was just a real um, respect and thoughtfulness in Philippa about um, all that she and, and Neville and her partners are doing um, through the project in terms of working with other people, in terms of, you know, thinking about and working with with the land and, and with that kind of climate change focus. Um, yeah, that respect feels really important. And I think beyond the project, just in how we, we relate to one another, we relate with the world um, and having individual words as almost ways in to doing so. Yeah, and and just it really, I mean, it's an obvious thing already to to say, but it really brought home to me how, you know, what a position we are in as English language speakers Mm. um, in in the world. And it can be easy to just to take that for granted, you know, the, the ease that comes with that or the power that comes with that and therefore the responsibility that comes with that. And yeah, the kind of respect and the genuine curiosity to say, well, this is only our experience, actually, how is it for you? Mm. Um, and, and neither is more, you know, important um, than the other. And it's, it's that idea of, I think she, she touched on it being a conversation mm. and a kind of softer way into, into, yeah, climate change, but, but equally I would say as a way into just simply relating to, to each other and with each other, it feels you know, I've said it before, but I just I strongly think that whilst we need technology and money for tricky issues like climate change, we need right relationship and the ability to connect and empathy as as almost deeper, more pressing needs, really. Because if we can't get those things right, then actually you can have all the tech in the world and it's not going to do anything in a sustainable, you know, collectively owned way anyway. So, yeah, the respect piece and just yeah that awareness felt really important and yeah you're right that power that 
that we have as as native English speakers, you know, when there are 8,000 languages around the world. Yeah, and it reminds me of a quote by Nelson Mandela, which is, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. And it's almost here we're being invited to to go beyond our our own limiting language and, and really hear other people's ways of thinking and being and expressing themselves and, and in that finding common humanity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and finding new, new lessons and new wisdom as well. I love how she mentioned that quote. I think it was in our language, they left all the lessons for us. Yeah. Um, that really jumped out, you know, language and, and words aren't simply just a kind of logical transactional thing. Um, they, are, they are, you know, packed with history and wisdom and meaning and potential and possibility. And I think mm-hmm. for me, this project just really goes into that and says, mm-hmm. okay, well, let's start uncovering some of that or not even start uncovering that you know like she referenced in in many cultures and places and and groups of people they've always known that Mm -hmm. the language is a a powerful vessel for all sorts of things it's let's let's start realizing that ourselves and learning from that and applying that to you know things that maybe people are getting exhausted with like thinking about climate change for me, this this work is about shining a a new lens, shining a you know, looking at a familiar thing um, yeah. with fresh eyes. Yeah, that just feels in, incredibly helpful mm. and, and urgent and necessary. Yeah, language and words they they tie us to the past and the present, but also invite us to be dynamic and creative. And we don't always necessarily know what the path of the answer will be. So one of the words they also shared is Ieisho, which means good path. So it's, it's almost a, a curiosity about, you know, how a good path or good paths can look, you know, as we mm. think about climate change, as we think about how we are with the natural world and as part of the natural world, as, as we all said, you know, trying to uh, get away from that idea of separation. Mm. There's a um, new project um, that's kicked off down here in Devon, where I am recently, on on and around Dartmoor, opening up old pilgrim tracks, so mm. between ancient churches and along rivers and things. And it's beautiful. And I, I looked at the little video about this project, and it opens up with a ancient quote from the Old Testament, which is something like, Stan stand at the crossroads and ask for the old ways um ask for the ancient ways mm-hmm. so something like that about kind of you know choosing the path of the old and the ancient ways and there's something around that kind of you know thinking beyond us right now thinking to the generations that have come before and the generations that will come after mm. and looking at the ancient wisdom in that and taking that forward to the future. And Philippa referenced that, you know, mm. towards the end as she talked about decision-making, you know, how do mm. we, how do we think about the seven generations that mm. were before us and the seven that will come after us? Suddenly it becomes more than just a transactional way of, as she said, you know, I put this on the table, you'll put that and we'll kind mm. of find a meeting place. It's what it's, no it's what is the context we're in how have we got to this place where are we going and I think 
this project really helps us do that. It kind of helps us zoom out and say, mm. where are we right now? But where have we been and where are we going? And mm. these words, I think, help us to do that, just mm. to see differently and to ask different questions. Mm. There's also something about responsibility. You know, when we think about the seven generations to come, it's um, really taking that long-term view feels really you know, important, even if slightly scary, but but also there's something grounding about that and actually thinking, okay, well, you know, what can I do when I think about my my next seven generations? Um, and I think something else I particularly appreciated was that real diverse span that Philippa and, and her work um, is inhabiting from the science through to um, a real um, appreciation for Indigenous wisdom and more of that kind of spiritual artistic um, space, um, again, which I think is going to be really important um, out, in, out in the world in action. Yeah, it's weaving together science and art and philosophy and spirituality um, and things which actually a lot of people are quite uncomfortable in exploring. It's much easier just to sort of sit behind mm. policy perhaps whatever carbon targets than it is to say well who are we as people and where have we gone wrong and how do we correct our path and you know to ask those deeper questions and again I think these words just help us to do that it feels like it's um it's not negating the fact that there is a real emergency here um and that action is really important and that the work that people in the climate change world are doing is really important. But there's a, a kind of, it's giving a little bit of a breath and context around it, which I, I feel is very welcome. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not either or either, is it? It's, mm, it's, it's, yeah. we, need, we need all kinds of approaches. And the way we approach things in here in the UK might be totally different to, you know, how someone approaches in another place another time another another mindset another culture and it's there's wisdom in all of that um yeah. so how do we weave it together yeah well it reminds me of our second episode this season around climate change and, and really looking at you know playing to our strengths um when it comes to climate change yeah absolutely it some of it brought to mind too i know we touched on Robert McFarlane's work but his, his other book with the artist Jackie Morris The Lost Words mm. which you know was it was kind of um, a lament in some ways for words that have dropped out of our dictionary the Oxford Dictionary I think um, and these are nature words so they're trying to sort of create new awareness and understanding and entry into the words and what they mean yeah it kind of really resonated for me with that project but I guess this is almost on a sort of more global scale mm, and a, and a yeah. more ancient scale in some ways mm. yeah mm. absolutely yeah it reminds me of um a quote we mentioned in in the last season episode on language um by Robert McFarlane in Landmarks um which I'll, I'll repeat here because it, it feels relevant here too so in both Lewis and Arizona language is used not only to navigate but also to charm the land Words act as compass. Place speech serves literally to enchant the land, to sing it back into being, and to sing one's being back into it. Mm, yeah, feels really relevant. Place speech, I love that. Mm. And, and yeah, words as a compass. Oh. 
beautiful yeah so I guess, I guess as we we wrap up it's it's thinking about you know that idea of choice and and where do we choose to to take what we've learned from today and 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 put our attention and yeah I'd really invite you to to explore living language lands website and social media um, and also to think about how you can explore the words yourselves wherever you are but also how you can share them with others whether you know in reading groups or with your children um, to help the the words really um, come alive in new places yeah absolutely I love that you know making it really personal to you whether that's a resonance you have with one of the words in Mm. living language land or whether it's new words you find on your own doorstep or in your own country that maybe open up or, or, or bring fresh eyes to whether it's to climate change or to any other number of topics. Yeah it just I guess it's it's just remembering that this is a way for relating with the world and and that could even be in just a, a short interaction. I was in, in Battersea Zoo earlier this week with my, my two boys and um, we were watching a, a grey parrot who suddenly started saying hello to the boys. And it was just enchanting watching them trying to communicate back, hello, hello, and then the occasional hello would come. And language, whether it's between species or with, between different peoples, is just such a, a wonderful gift. Yeah, it is. It's a gift. And um, I think this this episode felt like a gift. I really yeah. appreciate Philippa and, yeah. and her partner's work. And um, it's nice to be able to share it on, yeah. on this platform. Well, here's wishing you, Elizabeth, and all our listeners a wonderful summer, or it might not be summer where you are. Um, so wishing you a wonderful month or so um, until we, we next come together. Um, with an unfurling episode so it's goodbye for now yeah thank you you've been listening to unfurling a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire thanks for listening thank you